Hello and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the weekly podcast where I interview different editors. This week my guest is Tony White, founder and publisher of Piece of Paper Press. Piece of Paper Press do exactly what it sounds like. They make books from a single sheet of A4 paper and have published authors like Joanna Walsh and Michael Moorcock. Tony is also the author of books including Foxy Tea and one of my favourite books of recent years, The Fountain in the Forest, a postmodern detective story that uses the solutions to the Guardian cryptic crossword to guide Tony's writing. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode and to hear more about it. Tell us a little bit about Piece of Paper Press and how it came about. Yeah, Piece of Paper Press is a publishing project that I started in 1994. um, And it was designed as a kind of low-tech, sustainable, uh, cheap uh, commissioning platform and a distribution platform um, that would be uh, sustainable and not need to grow, never need need, uh, any funding or sales. Um, and the way that it works is uh, each book is made from a single sheet of A4 paper folded uh, and stapled uh, to create an A7 uh, booklet. Mm, so it's about the uh, size of my hand, really. Yeah, kind of part, the, the palm, it fit in the palm of your hand. And um, each book is uh, published in an edition of 150 um, and each book is given away. Uh, the whole print run is given away, uh, apart from a couple of a uh, couple of copies which are kept in an archive. And um, it came about because uh, prior to that, I had been I'd set up, in fact, a program of uh, commissions and readings and screenings in a gallery called the Showroom in in East London at the time. Um, and this was a program of events that occupied the kind of downtime between between exhibitions in this gallery I just thought well uh, it would be great to, to, to use that kind of space and for f- three or four years four years I, I commissioned a series of readings and screenings that, that would take place in that in the gallery and as that came to an end I realised I, I quite enjoyed the, the commissioning process this mm. dialogue and um, having a, a space to, to put a conversation you know mm. so, so to be sort of talking to to, to, to writers or artists and, and have a place to kind of put that conversation. And um, so I realised I wanted to kind of carry on commissioning, mm. but I wanted to, to do, do so in a way that wouldn't be dependent upon bricks and mortar right. and would never need to make money on the door, would never need uh, a funding application or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. But would, um, that could be uh, light and small and... Um, and sustainable. Mm. It's interesting your use of the word commissioning there, which is using it in its truest sense of the yeah. word. Because often when people use the word commissioning now in terms of publishing, what they're actually saying is they get sent loads of books and they pick the ones yeah. that they want yeah. to commission. Whereas I think what you're talking about is much more, uh, you're, you know, you're kind of starting much earlier than that in a way. Much earlier. So it's starting with a, with a, a dialogue and the fact that there is, uh, you know, with piece of paper press, there's a format, you know, there's a 16-page booklet format yeah. that, that kind of exists and and people either kind of either I kind of uh, introduce the idea to people in a conversation or people kind of approach me with yeah. you know, having heard about it or seen it with an idea that they think might suit and somehow um, those that kind of conversation becomes a, a sort of uh, a, a sort of productive dialogue I guess mm. and um, it's, it's funny because there's because the books are so small uh, people often think perhaps that they'll be uh, quick to make. Yes. But in fact, of course, it's still a 16-page book, booklet. You know, yeah. and, um, and so they always take two or three years yeah. uh, and of what? conversation and just trial and error to get... Right. So in terms of the right. actual, let's say, manuscript, the yeah. actual story itself, yeah. not, not the production process yeah. taking that long, but the actual bringing the idea into fruition. Yeah. And yeah, so how exactly. many have you published? So your 25-year uh, anniversary this year? It, yeah, it was... Uh, we've published uh, something like 40, mm. maybe 39 right. uh, editions. Uh, but you time. don't do kind of two a year. You, you, you make There's them no when they're schedule. ready. There's no schedule at all, no deadlines. Uh, they just... Uh, they reach a kind of critical mass and then they're ready and then, and then we, we publish them. And it, it means that once... 
you know, maybe once a year or so, um, I spend a day usually with the artist or the writer that, that has produced the, this, you know, the, the current book. And we'll actually spend a day just uh, making the, the whole print run. Right. You know, we'll sort of... It's that quick once you've got to that point. But once you've got to that point, it's, you know, stapling and trimming 150 booklets uh, is, uh, but is a morning's work, really. But very interesting for the that, that hands-on, you know, very few people work in publishing print or make Absolutely. the books. Absolutely. The, the kind of making of it is quite important, I think. It's a, it's a kind of social uh, interaction. And uh, it's it's quite refreshing, you know, even infrequently to actually spend a you know to spend a day making something mm. with your hands, you know, mm. um, and um, and the you know the, the they are limited editions. There's there is no digital version right. ever of of the books. So there's a kind of um, there's a sort of uh, slightly anachronistic uh, now manufactured sort of scarcity about about the books but mm. but when when the series started back in uh, 1994 that was that was what all kind of print was like there was no alternative to print you know and if you if you couldn't get a particular record or a particular kind of book you couldn't get it you just have story. to spend the next decade looking for it you know? right and um so i i quite like the fact that um that the design hasn't changed in a yeah. way, and the, the audience, uh, the readership uh, for the books is also part of the design, if you like, because the um, the writer or the artist that I'm working with on 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 each title, they get fifty copies to give away. Mm to whoever they want mm. um, and I give away the remaining kind of 95 copies so they're never sold they're never sold yeah. no. mm. so uh, that's very interesting so you've got something that is kind of handmade finite yeah uh, uncommercial yeah uh, by design yeah um, it's and the really readership is already there it's predefined yeah how interesting except every now and then um, we give we give away a book at an event right um, so uh, recently, for example, Joanna Walsh's book, uh, Shklovsky's Zoo, which I have on the table here in front of me. It's a rather beautiful orange paper yes. with a very striking uh, uh, <laughs> kind of uh, graphic on the, on the cover. And uh, we, gave, we gave this away, or we gave away maybe half the print run at an event and a reading at the Book Art Bookshop in, mm. in uh, Pitfield Street in London, uh, old street area and um, and then we kind of Joanna and I divvied up what was left and kind of gave gave those away to our sort of to our, to our friends I guess and um, Shklovsky Zoo particularly maybe I think it's a masterpiece it's a it's a stunning um, it's a stunning book it's a story about a book that that Joanna wasn't able to get hold of mm. uh, by, by uh, Shklovsky his book Zoo which is a series of letters and um and so here, here is a, a short story about a book that that was impossible to get hold of. And that's now itself impossible to get hold of. Right, so there's a kind of uh, vertiginous um, uh, element to, to to the how the book kind of performs in in a way. Mm. And um, what's been quite interesting is is people you know approach um, Joanna trying to get hold of a of a copy. Um, or they approach me, and there they really are none. You know, there, there yeah. is no digital equivalent. Yeah. And it's been the same with with Michael Moorcock, the great Michael Moorcock, who who had been a fan of Piece of Paper Press for for a number of years, and kept saying, "I really want to write a story for you, Tony." And and he he wrote a, a brilliant story um, called A Twist in the Lines, which was a new Jerry Cornelius story about the the destruction of the Paolozzi murals in uh, Tottenham Court Road Station. And uh, again, it was published as, as an edition of 150. And um, a lot of Moorcock's fans were kind of contacting uh, the message boards or contacting Mike and saying, you know, where's the digital copy? You know, where can I read this? And he was saying, well, I'm sorry, it's, there's only 150. I've got no plans to put it in an anthology. Mm. It's just a kind of special one-off. It you must know. be such an interesting experience as a writer to come to a... T- templated form mm-hmm. where it's 
you know, you cannot deliver something that is over the, over the word count. You'd be surprised how many words you can get into it. Yeah, a, how many words a, is it roughly, uh, do you know? Into an A7 uh, uh, booklet, uh, 16 pages, about 3,000. Right, so it's so what you would expect from a kind of, of short story. Yeah, I mean, the, the point size is kind of biblical, mm. I would say, you know. Uh, but you totally um, legible. Yeah, totally legible, yeah. But again, just thinking about that kind of creative process mm. where, where you know, in so much uh, talk is of things online that never disappear, whether that be politicians or celebrities yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You know, as a writer, you're often hoping for your things to have a sense of permanence, whereas this is just a slightly different headspace. It's, where... it's incredibly ephemeral. Mm. Yeah, it's completely ephemeral. But... Um, some of them do make their way into libraries and other kinds of public collections. So um, a couple of uh, people who have donated their collections of piece of paper press to um, the Small Press and Poetry Library at UCL, right. for example. Um, the, the library at Chelsea School of Art have uh, at least, I think, the first 10 or 15 editions and they were they were donated by the um, the art historian Stephen Berry when he was the librarian there, and I think the Live Art Development Agency also have many of them in their library. And I'm sure into some private collections who are hoping that they will acquire some few private collections, and 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 these are quite valuable little things. Joanna Walsh's and and Michael Moorcock's particularly. Yeah. Um, uh, though what's quite interesting is that the um, the distribution shrinks every time because um, generally, mostly, past contributors are added to the mailing list. Oh, I see. So uh, they slowly displace other potential readers. So, I see. So, so although there's a set print, the, 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 yeah. those 150 suddenly are sent to specific people. There's no way to guarantee that you will kind of wow. continue to get them. No. How a lovely project. Um, and talk. Is there anything that unifies the content of the books? Do you have? Are they fiction or non-fiction? They're, or they're completely different. So, so Joanna's is a is a, a short story, as was as was Michael Moorcock's. Um, the artist Alison Turnbull uh, drew up a series of color charts. Sheena Rose, uh, for example, a, a, a brilliant artist from Barbados, who I met because we were both. Um, uh, I was doing a reading and she was doing a performance at Turner Contemporary in Margate. And uh, we kind of kept in touch. At that time, she was um, doing, uh, she was a postgraduate student in the US on a Fulbright scholarship. Um, and she posted some images from her sketchbooks online, maybe on Instagram or Facebook or something. I just thought, wow, these are great. And they'd make such a good, you know, such a good book for a piece of paper press. So I, I sent her a few examples of past editions and said, you know, why don't we try and edit a selection of drawings from your sketchbooks? Mm, and that's and what we have here in front and of us. That's what you're looking at now. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, there's almost a narrative there, but any narrative is sort of accidental. It's just a series of literally a series of full page drawings from her kind of pocket sketchbooks that she's compulsively doing all the time. Mm. And for her, these are kind of images of home or images that speak to the idea of home. Um, and um, because, as with, as is generally the case with piece of paper press editions, because there was a couple of years between us having the, the first conversation and the book finally coming out, in the intervening period, uh, Sheena's career went kind of through the roof. Um, Marlon James bought her work. I think one of the Williams sisters, Serena Williams or Venus Williams, bought one of her paintings, and uh, and so she's kind of red hot. You know, yeah. artists from Barbados, yeah. but but uh, but um, it was a great privilege to have been able to to publish her drawings in in piece of paper press. So people really use use it. Um, they bring their own interests and concerns to the format, and the only thing that is constant is the format. Mm. And so, in that instance, are you um, approaching individual artists and writers with them in mind rather than the specific story they're going to produce in mind? So, going back to that commissioning definition we spoke mm. about a minute mm. ago, where although you might have a book from someone you really like, you mm -hmm. ultimately you have to judge the book mm -hmm. because you're coming in a, at a much earlier process mm -hmm. and thinking, "Wow, I'd love to do something with them." Mm. Um, is that the do you know what I'm getting at? It's a slightly different procedure where you're giving someone this 
templated space to work with yeah it varies i mean each one is sort of different in a way you know mm. so so um so they they really they really vary i'm trying to think of some examples so so the artist Lillian Lin, for example, who's on at the on at the Tate at the moment in Tate Britain, she had uh, forty years uh, before she had posed a series of questions to to um, to scientists, and no no scientist that she spoke to at the time had been willing to answer the questions that she asked. Wow. And and uh, she we were speaking about something else, and she uh, she said, well, you know, I think that that maybe they're some some scientists might be prepared to answer these questions now, you know. And so she posed the questions, and and the answers came back. And um, we just thought, actually, that would that would be a perfect, you know, book for a piece of paper mm. to, to have these questions that were asked forty years ago and the answers that finally kind of yeah, came wow. in. Yeah, um, wow. And um, but I I think it it's there's it can, it can, it's it's different in each case that that kind of process mm. of. Uh, and do you find where that you the idea kind of where the idea and the format meet right sort of um but it does come from conversation mm. i think i think conversation is the is the common denominator in, well, in terms of you meet that it's a kind of right. that it comes out of organically out of a conversation mm. so, uh, um and so you're not doing an act of call out for submissions or you know you're not constantly on the lookout is it much more organic no, than that it's yeah, I'm, I, and actually, um, every now and then, someone will get in touch, having seen them around. You mm. know, particularly now that there are sort of forty odd, uh, or, or getting on for that. And um, yes, there's never actually a, a, a call out for ideas as such. And there's no, there's no real imperative to to increase the the production rate or to you mm. know to to make make more of them or make yeah. make money or anything so so it kind of just kind of rolls along in a way and at the moment probably last year was unusual because we published four uh all at once in october because there was a big um there was a sort of festival in sheffield called strong language that was curated by an artist and writer called tim etchells that centered around piece of paper press and so for the first time ever we showed all twenty five years worth of, of books wow. and all of the artworks and ephemera and stuff, which took up quite a lot of big vitrines. Um and um I can't remember where I was going with that. But the <laughs> uh, uh yeah so we, we published four to coincide with that. Right. You know, it was a sort of a special edition with Mike Harrison, Selena Thompson and Jules Denby, the punk poet who mm. I wanted to work with mm. for thirty years. Finally what got a chance good to do that. Yeah. And um can't remember who the the the, the fourth one. Oh, Courtney Newland, the brilliant uh, the brilliant novelist, uh, Courtney Newland. So so we did four last year, which is unusual. Usually it sort of averages out about one every one a year, or you know a couple every eighteen months. Or right. Um, I've also forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got this great quote from the TLS saying minimalism yeah. has seldom been so minimal as the productions of piece of paper press. Yeah. Do you find that now there's 25 years in and linking it to that maybe that exhibition last year that there is people are paying attention more or does that matter to you? There's been a well, there's been a. Uh, I think that exhibition last year did did bring some more focus to uh, you know critical attention to piece of paper press, um, and uh, there was a. A new edition of Stephen Berry's uh, kind of authoritative book on the history of artist books, yeah. uh, called Artist Books 1963 to 2000, I think, uh, which came out um, uh, a couple of years ago and which includes all of the piece of paper press editions up to 2000. And um, and in the blurb says, you know, the history of artist books from Mallarmé to piece of paper press, which was an incredible wow. thing. Uh, made the subtitle hear. yeah I know I made the blurb <laughs> and um, so so that kind of uh, critical attention has been, has been interesting but um, uh, but it's still it still remains a kind of uh, something that's it doesn't change the scale of the of the thing yeah, it still remains yeah. kind of slightly below the radar yeah, I'm really interested in in your role in it as well so mm -hmm. if we talk a little bit about the authors writing to a template or to a specific mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. it's really interesting to go into it as a publisher and saying, I want something that's really renewable. So I'm going to 
make it completely orphaned from any financial concerns, mm-hmm. either needing investment or to make mm-hmm. a profit mm-hmm. or anything. You know, you know, you could imagine a situation where suddenly you're getting this, you, you are making money from it and it suddenly blows up and you want to do more of it. So you've kind of made sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it also is only one of many other things you're doing. So it must be mm-hmm. renewable on a personal level as well, that it doesn't become exhausting or tiring, but can, stays interesting. And Yeah, it, yeah, it's and it's sort of sustainable. I mean, when I when I... Sustainable was the word that I was using uh, to describe it when I sort of designed the, the format, you know, back in '94. But I didn't; I had no idea that I'd still be doing it 25 mm. years later, you know. So obviously, it does. It, it kind of settles into a kind of the the rhythms of life in sure, a way, sure. you know. And um, and it's as I was saying earlier, it's kind of nice to know that that you know at least one day a year I'll actually kind of set aside a bit of time just to kind of make the next mm. book you know and while you're on that i'm just mm. just to give i think people as clear an idea of what exactly they look like as they can do does it mimic book production as a whole you know you have one giant piece of paper that is folded it down does into... i mean it does it's 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 kind of uh if you can imagine a book is made up of lots of signatures which is kind of bits of paper that are folded and trimmed and then sewn together in a stack yeah uh what piece of paper press does is make one Signature from a single A4 piece of paper, which is uh, kind of laid out and divided into eight yeah. on each side, um, and uh, it's folded twice along the kind of narrowest dimension, um, and that produces that turns you know a single piece of paper into a sixteen pa- page booklet once it's trimmed on the top and the side and and uh and stapled mm. so it is it is kind of um uh that that kind of template this you know pr- printing a signature on a piece of paper that is how yeah like if you were to printed, pull one you know, of those 32 yeah. or 16 page segments yeah. out of a book yeah. and trim it to this size that that is what it is yeah that is what it is and and um uh yeah so yeah exactly that's that's but but I again I, I quite I like the idea that it's like a it, for me it was like I was asking the question what's the what's the kind of the least thing that I could do that could still be called a book mm. you know and it it borrows the kind of that that production method from from you know printing you know his, you know the historical model but but um, but it's. Yeah, but it's just a, that kind of the, the fragment. It, yeah. it, it doesn't, uh, but it, I, but it, and yet it's still a book. Because I guess quite often with uh, when people push the form of a book, mm-hmm. they're talking about more or different. You know, they're talking about uh, interesting text design or, yeah. uh, but this is or going craft. To... There's often I think there's there's a kind of uh, thing about books as kind of beautiful objects, which is you know. So I'm looking at some books that are beautiful objects in the room around me now. Yeah. Um, but but um, I guess piece of paper press, what it doesn't do, it, it's not interested in craft or the quality of the paper uh, or, you know, um, any kind of virtuosity in, in, in craft or using fine materials. Yeah. There's, a kind of, there's a sort of anti-aesthetic, a kind of punk... Yeah, there is uh, aesthetic um, at the heart of it yeah, as well. Yeah, it's so again it's, like like the work it's, itself. It's kind of democratic uh, mm. format, I guess. Yeah, um, great. Thanks so much. Um, but I'm going to ask you to change tact a little bit oh, now. Okay. So, how did you first become involved professionally in the world of books? Was it through as a writer initially? Yes. Yeah, it was. Um, so, when uh, I went to art school, that's how I got into writing. Uh, I went to art <laughs> school and just wrote. You know, I did nothing else really when I when I went to art school. Um, it wasn't easy for me to get to art school. Um, came from a working class family, but um, there was a, an art school in the town that I grew up in, and there was a good public library in the town that I grew up in, and that was my access to, to literature and just to the idea that that people could kind of work in the arts. You know, mm. there's a big building, probably the largest employer in the small town that I grew up in, was the art school. So. So you could see that people were making a life doing this kind of stuff. So I went to art school and uh, really realised that that uh, what I was doing was writing. It took me quite a while to realise that I was just writing things down and not making anything you mm. know, other than the writing. And um, and when I left art school, I carried on writing and 
it took a while. I, I suppose I, I, I wrote about, I thought I was writing a novel, to be honest, um, well, as soon as I left art school. But I was writing, in fact, in fact, I was writing short stories. I wrote about 60 short stories. Um, and finally, one of them, uh, one of them seemed like it was publishable, you know. And um, I saw at that time, there's a kind of in the early 90s, mid 90s, there was a sort of a, a kind of uh, a new wave of small presses uh, in the UK that had been enabled by the uh, the sudden ubiquity of Apple Macs and uh, desktop publishing. And so a lot of kind of funky small presses started up at, at that time. And I, I submitted a short story to an anthology uh, called Techno Pagan that was published by what a great Pulp name. Books. I know wow. that takes you right back to the to the mid nineteen nineties. Techno Pagan, and I had I, I saw that this this call for ideas that that Pulp uh, Pulp Books put out, and had a short story that fitted that bill exactly, and so I sent it in and and it was uh, and it was accepted and, and it, it was published and actually the. Uh, this is so so mid nineties. Not just the <laughs> title, but in fact, the launch of the book uh, was in Siberia, which was not not the uh, not the windswept kind of uh, Soviet Republic, but but uh, Siberia, the the first internet cafe in the world. Wow! Which uh, which had opened in Fitzrovia in nineteen ninety four, just nineteen ninety four, the first uh, internet wow. cafe. Same and year then, as piece of paper press. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. Uh, so high tech and low tech together, and uh, and then it moved to Golden Square in 1995. And this uh, anthology, Techno Pagan, was was launched in Siberia in Golden Square, and um, and after that, I I realised that the other these short stories that I'd written, I realised were, were short stories. None of the other ones were publishable, so I threw them away. And just started again. Mm. Uh, and I wrote my first novel, which was called Road Rage, um, in '95, and that was uh, that was published by a small press in Scotland uh, called Low Life Books, and uh, got a great kind of critical uh, response. And uh, I wrote a few more novels in the in the late '90s and many more short stories, and then wrote a novel, Foxy T. Uh, which was um, which I was right. I suppose I started writing at the end of ninety nine, two thousand, and uh, here we were five years after you know uh, six years after the internet cafe had been invented. You know, with Siberia, I was still amazed that no one had set a novel in an internet shop because in the intervening period, the internet shop had become a ubiquitous kind of uh, social space Absolutely. in every city in the world. Yes. What had started in Fitzrovia in Siberia became this ubiquitous space. And I couldn't believe that nobody had, um, nobody had set a novel in that space. So, so my novel Foxy T uh, was written, it was a novel kind of about the East End of London set in an internet shop. And um, that was then published by Faber and Faber. And um, that's and that internet cafe thing is really interesting. So, interesting. so like, there's one at the end of my row at yes. the moment, and the only time I have um, reason to go there is when I need to print something off. Yes, because like many people, I just never got a printer at home. And there's always it's the one of the la great places of every different type of person is there. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a predominantly Turkish neighborhood. Yeah. Um. There's loads of people who are there speaking to home. Uh, people who are i would say not what would you say digital natives say yeah. um there are people who are slightly down on their luck there's one yeah. i know a homeless guy who uses yeah. it again it's it's such a strange and kind of wonderful place to be and then there's people running in and out to print boarding passes and to me, yeah exactly exactly that and to me that's like those kind of victorian paintings of you know of uh, waterloo station all of life is here you know mm. um and uh, but what's interesting about them is people are going there to have these transactions that aren't really taking place in that space, you know. Right, they're going they're, there. To, it's kind of like an opium den or something. Like yeah, they're going they're, there to, going zone to, out. to get to this dreamlike space, and uh, and so so it seemed to be completely, uh, you know, to, to demand you know a novel kind of be written, be yeah. written about that, and um, and then since. So I guess that's that's how I kind of got into 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 books, and um, I, I worked as a bookseller 
also when I first left when I first left art school I was working at foils um, and then for a decade I was working as a postman wow uh, at uh, up on Upper Street actually wow. right around uh, the corner. sorting post yeah and uh, and in fact my third novel Charlie Uncle Norfolk Tango was written you know I was working nights at the post office and um, the novel was written at work a lot of it you know I'd, during my breaks or when it was a bit quiet I'd mm. get my notebook out and uh, and right. dedicated to long hand you know yeah exactly and then that brings us uh, roughly up to the next book we're going to talk, talk about oh, which yeah. is your uh, your most recent novel A Fountain in the Forest mm-hmm. um, now Fountain in the Forest has lots of things going on to it but it is would you say at heart a kind of mystery story it's a mystery story it's a postmodern detective novel um, it's the first of three novels that explore the legacy of this strange kind of slightly overlooked period in, in British history, the, the 90 days between the end of the miners' strike in 1985 and the Battle of the Beanfield mm. on the 1st of June 1985, which uh-huh. is when the, the Stonehenge Free Festival, the convoy of vehicles that were travelling to Stonehenge were uh, effectively ambushed by the police. And... Um, uh, I've been trying to kind of find a way to write about that period for quite a long time because I think this this is sort of interesting, a kind of like a you know maybe a revolution in policing somehow that, that mm. kind of happened in in that period, and trying to find a way to to approach that in fiction, and um, the fountain in the forest came out of uh, the fountain in the forest is set in London now. Is set in the south of France in mid, in the mid nineteen eighties and at the Battle of the Beanfield itself. Mm, so there's these kind of three strands to three it. Three strands, yeah. And um, and while I was researching it, I was really researching it in newspaper archives and um, through you know first person accounts that I could find of the period. Um, and I was looking particularly at, at um, two newspaper sources. One was Leeds Other Paper, which is a tiny independent newspaper that was published in Leeds from 74 to 94 never never sold more than 2000 copies of wow. each edition's tiny paper and it was a, a you know anti-nuclear anti-racist anti-sexist pro-trade union newspaper published weekly Fan- a fantastic uh, thing um, and that though it was pro-trade union, the unions were, were not pro-it because it couldn't <laughs> afford to pay NUJ rates. Oh, okay. And so it's not. Uh, so the NUJ successfully lobbied, in fact, for it not to be recognised as a newspaper. Um, so it's not in the national newspaper collection. What but luckily a contradiction! A, I know. <laughs> luckily, there's a set in in Leeds City Library. It's a bit. It strikes uh, me a tiny bit like piece of paper press in that it was this defined run of things. Uh, yeah, it's not dissimilar, and maybe that kind of uh, that kind of. Uh, radical you know traditional radical print is you know piece of paper press is kind of responding to that sure. kind of uh, that sort of history uh you know the pamphleteering of Wyndham Lewis and mm. things, things like this but piece of paper press uh, um sorry leads other paper and and the guardian newspaper i was really um looking while i was researching the mid 1980s and this strange period uh, the aftermath of the miners strike looking at the guardian newspaper because at that time i used to buy the guardian every day because the Guardian only cost 10p. Mm. And, um, and so every day I'd buy the paper and I would do the quick crossword at that time. Every day I did the quick crossword. And, you know, you had to fold the paper, you know, inside out and then kind of do the crossword. And so as I was researching uh, this period, you know, in the run-up to writing The Fountain in the Forest, um, I kept finding myself looking at these crosswords on the back pages, you know, of the, of the Guardian. That so you I, had filled in years before. That I'd done year, 30 years earlier. And I thought, actually, you know, just for fun, while I was there in the British Library, I thought, okay, I'm going to print one off and do it again. Just have another go and do it again, just for fun. And what I wasn't prepared for was this huge Proustian rush of memories and associations that it kind of opened up. And uh, and I thought there's something interesting going on here. Mm. Um, so I'd better do all ninety. You know, I'd better do I'd better do all of the crosswords from this kind of period. From those ninety I'm days, to kind of get get a hold of. Partly as a way of re-immersing myself into the habits of the, yeah. the period and the kind of muscle memory of yeah. that. But also, I, I quickly sort of realised that this was sort of it was like a kind of free ticket to the to the unconscious of the period. You know, the the kind of historical figures the kind of concerns and preoccupations of the time were kind of being revealed in Mm. this kind of uh this selection of 30 words a day 
that uh, that were the solutions to the Guardian Quick Crossword. And I, I, I'm a big f- fan of, like everyone, you know, of, of Georges Perec and, and Italo Calvino um, and the, the work uh, uh, from the 1960s and, and 70s, perhaps, of, uh, of the, the experimental writing group Ulipo, the Ouvroir de Literature Potentiel, um, a group of radical writers that included Calvino, Perec, Harry Matthews, uh, Raymond Cuneau and, and others who would uh, impose constraints, as they called them, on the production of writing using mathematical and scientific principles to produce writing. And, and the most famous of those, of course, is, is Perec's novel La Disparition, which was written without using the letter E. Mm. Um, and um, one of the constraints that, that Ulipo proposed, but I always felt hadn't really been... Um, uh, explored to its full potential, potential was the idea of the mandated vocabulary, where um, a text is written with a, a predetermined, you know, number of words that, that need to be used in the production of the text, and um, that's been used by Harry Matthews and others at the level of the the short story and of the poem, but I felt it hadn't really been used at the level of a novel, mm. and yet here, with these crossword solutions, were was a kind of like a storehouse of uh, of words and usage yeah. from 1985, and if I'm trying to write about 1985, why not use those? So, so, and I remembered that Perec, part of his oeuvre and his sort of practice in the last decade of his life was to compile a, a, a weekly crossword for the for the Parisian news uh, journal Le Point, and um, and so I suddenly thought, actually, well, this these crossword solutions. Um, as well as enabling me to immerse myself in the habits of the time, here perhaps is a mandated vocabulary. Mm. So I decided that the um, the uh, the ninety days, you know, uh, would could be, you know, ninety chapters could be mapped against those ninety days, and each chapter would be written using. Uh, all of the solutions to the Guardian crossword <laughs> from that day in 1985. And it's kind of, it really does something strange to when you're reading the book because they're presented in bold, so mm-hmm. you kind of, and it's explained that that's what's happening. So you see them coming a little way off and you do, you can start to see, and we were speaking a little bit about this before we went mm-hmm, on air, mm-hmm. about you start to see a little bit of the scaffolding that the writer is using yeah, that you are using yeah. uh, of having to either present an idea or a sentence or a tense or whatever yeah, it is yeah, in order yeah. to fit that word in. Yeah. And it does something very strange and um i was speaking to um an editor yesterday on another episode yeah, yeah. Uh, about different forms of of reading uh mm-hmm. when you can read as an editor or read as a reader mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, how yeah. how much focus mm-hmm. you are zoomed in mm-hmm. uh, you are and it kind of engenders that in when you're reading it because you see them coming and you know there's kind of a game afoot and mm-hmm. you're waiting to see what mm-hmm. the solution mm-hmm. uh, it goes back to that crossword puzzle it's a puzzle and you're waiting to see how you solve it it does it yeah there is a kind of puzzle there's a, there's something slightly uncanny about it as well and, and the um it, I mean, there's that old uh, sort of leotard or someone sort of said the, the the writer is the first reader, but the writer is also the first editor, you mm. know, and um, of a text. And um, the, the the words are, are in bold. The mandated fo- the words from the mandated vocabulary are presented in bold on the page, and that was partly um, an editorial strategy, just because we had to kind of keep hold of these words, you know, we had to, and we had to protect them. I see. Um, to make sure they didn't get cut by a to make copy sure they didn't get or, cut, yeah. and also because even even in the 30 years since 1985, language has changed and usage has changed, and you know, let's say Guardian style guides have changed. So in the crosswords, you'd have you know, things like tea shop would be a hyphenated. Yes. word t hyphen shop mm. that's not common, common usage, usage anymore so so um almost every time uh somebody new looked at the manuscript the reflex is to kind of correct these things to update these yeah. archaic uh forms of usage and so in order to protect them we had to put them in bold mm. uh and highlight them on on the page just to make sure that they you know that they that they didn't kind of um, yeah. uh, get 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 corrected, and we and uh, but somehow that that sort of stuck, and um, be, I like the fact that even though even though the Fountain in the Forest is a kind of it does obtain as a kind of detective story, as a kind of page turning thriller, that was the kind of idea, but it's also a kind of you know a sort of avant garde text with these kind of 
bolded words in. So, so there's a kind of disruption on the surface of the text, mm. if you like, that comes from these words being in bold. But also they're like the kind of crumbs on the forest floor, you know, in, the, in a fairy story. You know, they, they're going somewhere... Yes, you, you just may just may not know exactly where that is that they're going. Yeah, you know? to think about that, I think as well. You know, someone who's picked up this novel and started reading it might wonder why. Why would you choose mm-hmm, to do that? Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting hearing you speak about it now because these words are not seem just a gateway to those ninety days, but a gateway to you and those ninety days. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. And what was it like? Um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about you yourself as a publisher and working at Piece of Paper Press. What was, what is the, does it feel different to be edited or to be published in that way, to, to kind of, to be on the receiving end of those things? Yes, I mean, it's, to say, if you, if you uh, call me a publisher of Piece of Paper Press, I am technically the publisher of Piece of Paper Press, but it's, but it's not a kind of publishing that most people in publishing sure. would kind of even recognize, yeah. you know. They just think, what are these funny little books? Mm. I, I used to make funny little books when I was a kid. Um, and uh, so, so I think that, that I've, I've, editing's always been kind of part of the, of the, of the process, I think for me, because when I first started, almost before I was pub- published, before that first story was published in Technopagan in 1995, I was kind of reading my work live. You know, I was kind of doing readings at sort of spoken word nights or you know in odd venues, mm. um, and sort of trying out these things that I was writing on an audience live. And so, even though though. Even before that, they were they were published. Um, there's a kind of editorial process that comes when you look at a text that you know you're going to be reading to an audience mm. later. You think you see something and you think, "Oh my god, I can't say that." You know, you have to yeah. have to edit it and see what works and test something against the yeah, like uh, a standoff or something. Kind of, um, and that that um, that was certainly the case with uh, with my third novel, Charlie Uncle Norfolk Tango, which was. Which I was reading from live a lot, you know, in the in the the year or so before it was published, and uh, and that those readings were a way of kind of testing it, and that was a kind of editorial process in itself, mm. um, I think. So so for me, the um, the idea of of working with a, an editor came very very naturally, um, and um, and I think with with Foxy T, uh, for example, Foxy T. Um, which was set in an internet shop in Whitechapel and is written in multicultural London English. I mean, that that hadn't been given a name yet, multicultural London English, when I wrote the novel. It wasn't that term wasn't coined until two thousand and eight. But I was trying to I was trying to use the novel to kind of map the the sort of economies of of, of Whitechapel in in fictional form. And it seemed to me that the most interesting economy, as in a, a, a when I use the word economy, I'm not using it as an economist. I'm just talking about a system of value sure. and exchange spoken language um and um and uh this kind of spoke new spoken language multicultural english which which was a kind of hybrid that borrowed from black british speech from from uh cockney and from bangladesh and from from all the kind of communities of london but was closest to black british language um was kind of hybrid that that no one community seemed to own anymore and, and it just um uh, so in writing about the East End of London at that time, at the turn of the century, it, it would have seemed absurd to write uh, to write about East London in standard English. So, it, so it had, the novel had to be written in multicultural London English. And so, so when Faber bought um, Foxy T, um, the question of who would be the you know a copy editor that could could cope with a novel that was written in, in kind mm. of multicultural, multicultural London English. Uh, came up and in fact it was it was Charles Boyle who now runs uh, CB Editions yeah. the highly uh, highly regarded brilliant uh, indie uh, publisher um, uh, but at that time he was um, he was a, an, an editor uh, and in, involved in production at Faber but on the poetry side um, and so 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 with Foxy T Charles, Charles, uh, the poetry editor came in and, and edited the the, the prose because he had a just an eye for for the kind of cadences and the kind of rhythms. That's of, interesting. Of the language, taking a poetry yeah. mind to use. Yeah, a, a, yeah. 
And before I ask you the final question, yes. I'm going to ask you to read for a minute, if you would be so kind, oh, yeah. to give us a short selection of Fountain of Forest, which okay. was also published by Faber and Faber last year. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm going to read... Okay, I've got a, a very short reading that's like a page and a half uh, from the beginning of the novel. And this, is, uh, this will introduce you to, uh, to Detective Sergeant Rex King. Our hero. Uh, yeah, our hero, that's right. Um, who works out of uh, Hoban Police Station uh, on Lambs Conduit Street in London. And uh, this uh, little reading will also introduce some of the kind of themes of the novel. So I'm just going to start straight in. This is, chap- this is uh, chapter two. <laughs> this is chapter two, Velar, Hedge Mustard. And it's page 30, if anyone wants to read along uh, to the reading. It's page 30 of the novel. Right now, though, today, Rex King had other things on his mind, and top of the list was coffee. Having got home after midnight and wound down for longer than he had planned, Rex had awoken with a hangover that was roughly commensurate, emphasis on rough, with the bottle of industrial Australian Shiraz he had finished at 1.30 in the morning. He had just about had time for a shit and a shower, but not enough to load up the stovetop pot and make his usual espresso. There were plenty of cafes and restaurants to choose from around here, but Rex liked to put his money, such as it was, the way of local businesses who paid their taxes, rather than filling the non-dom coffers of the more ubiquitous chains that didn't. He wasn't an unreconstructed food philistine like some of his colleagues, but given the choice, Rex would go for a good fillet steak and chips over confit of onglet on a salad of wild hedge mustard every time. For even simpler fare, bacon sandwich simple, Sid's was hard to beat. It opened early, too. The late spring air was fresh enough to cut through his hangover a little, but the headache was only compounded by lack of sleep. He'd been too drunk to seriously practice any of the relaxation techniques that Helen had once taught him. Imagine that the in-breath is a wave. Breathe out quickly through your teeth. So he'd been unable to stop his mind from racing, replaying and dissecting the events of the day. At three in the morning, he had realised he was still awake and listening to the steady, duple beat usually inaudible, of the kitchen clock. Sitting outside Sid's with the Guardian on the table in front of him, folded up and unread, crossword not even started, and his coffee and a bacon sandwich on white toast on the way, there was plenty to think about. Three conflicting narratives that would be competing for his attention in the coming days, if not weeks and months. Firstly, there was his old friend Terry Hobbs, who was suddenly, astonishingly, front-runner to be the lead suspect in a murder investigation. Then there was the news of the safety and custody inspection. Now, cherry on the cake, Tennyson was about to be dumped in the public domain all over again. The first of these was puzzling, but Rex had been loudly relieved when it became apparent that at least it wasn't Hobbs's body they had found the previous day. The missing friend still hadn't returned Rex's call, but knowing Terry as he did, Rex had told Eddie that he was as confident as a bent bookie at Newmarket that Hobbs couldn't have done it that he'd be willing to bet a year's salary, that there'd be no forensic evidence, not a single fingerprint, to link Tell to whoever it was that had been killed in the Royal Palace Theatre paint frame. The second? Rex was less worried about the outcome of any inspection than about the rigours and the burden of the SIC itself, like he didn't already have enough to do without having to accommodate a bunch of apparatchiks with clipboards crawling all over everything. He knew that he had kept a tight ship on SD, so it was just a matter of putting his head down and submitting to the forthcoming process, speaking when spoken to, framing every response within the relevant regulation, and not obstructing them in any way. Easier said than done, but not impossible. That just left Tennyson. So I'll leave it there. And actually, while I was while I was reading the... Uh, so the, 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 the mandated vocabulary in that section were, were, were the words often, duple, front runner, uh, new market, fingerprint, forthcoming, mm. uh, etc. So some kind of words that were easy to fit in and some kind of slightly unusual ones and some places and probably some nouns and names. And all, of the, all of the character names apart from Rex come from the mandated vocabulary. How interesting. All of the locations, all of the... Uh, in fact, the story... Yeah. So the mandated vocabulary is is it's not the currants in the cake; it's the cake. Uh, uh, but I, what I did want to say was that my editor Lee Braxton uh, at Faber was the, also the editor, the commissioning editor for for uh, for Foxy T, 
and it, uh, his input was was very important with Fountain in the Forest um, as well. Not least um, the idea uh, of just splitting the novel into kind of three three sections, just to kind of just bring that into a slightly sharper focus. Mm. The the, um, the 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 London now, the the France then, and the and the Battle of the Beanfield. Um, so. So um, it's quite unusual to have worked with the same editor on a, you know, on a, on a, um, mm. on two novels across that kind of yeah. uh, time period. So. Thanks very much. Now to end, I'm going to ask you one question. You've been yes. speaking as writer, as publisher, as yes. founder, as printer, almost uh, as reader. What have you read recently that you've really loved? What was, what's been your favorite book of recent times? Favorite book of uh, of the last. Uh, few months was the years by annie erno mm. um uh it's a kind of uh it's on the actually now i just saw it it was um announced it's on the um the man booker international man booker yes. prize uh, long list isn't it and it's an incredible book which uh, uh it's a it's a memoir uh but written in the collective we instead of i um and it's just something about the way that she kind of uh she hits on some kind of strange thing about the kind of transference and the forgetfulness of kind of both of memory and of hope and of uh, stories and ideas from one generation to the next or even mm. within a generation. And um, uh, and I don't think I've I've read anyone writing about memory in that way before, that kind mm. of, that process of continual, continual forgetting. Yeah, Join me next week when my guest will be Shelka Morosovic, publisher at Don Books and co-editor at The White Review. Many people will know Don Books as the famous bookstore chain. Shelka runs their publishing arm. We'll be discussing republishing some classics, including the work of Natalia Ginsberg, as well as books like Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker and The Gastronomical Me by M.F.K. Fisher, as well as some contemporary fiction like In the Distance by Herman Diaz. Shelka will also be telling us about her time at Melville House and working on Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter or at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thank you.